0: I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. Keep, faith keep the faith, keep the faith Keep the faith, keep the faith What's up guys, Brian Ratliff here Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the Word of God. Today, as I shared with you earlier, it's going to be a part sermon, part lecture. And uh, I have the PowerPoint slides here to help us all, not just to help me in my thought process, but to help you. Because today, what I want to do, what I want to attempt to do, is not only speak from a theology perspective, but also speak from a historical and philosophical perspective of why I believe in the resurrection. And so the title of my message today is Why I Believe in the Resurrection. But before we go any further, I I, want to show you a picture of this guy right here. And if I were to show you this picture, who would you say this individual was? Good job. You guys are historians. Um, But suppose I told you that I did not believe George Washington was a historical character. You would say, well, that's a little silly, Brian, because historians tell us that he was a real character. And what if I were to tell you, well, I think that historians might be telling us something that is not entirely true. You say, well, we know he's a real character because of the pictures that people have drew of him. And I could say, well, those pictures are just a figment of somebody's imagination, not a real person that they drew and painted. You say, well, we have books that have been written by George Washington that have survived like 300 years or more, give or take. And I would say, well, actually what perhaps happened was somebody back in the 1700s began to take the form and image of this person called George Washington and began to use the name George Washington to write books used the name of George Washington to lead a revolt against the crown of, of England and Britain so that they could rally around and begin their own country. You say, well, that's silly. You say, well, you can go to his place in Virginia, of all places, where we're standing right now, and you can see his tombstone. And I could just say, well, maybe that is a fake tombstone. And I share all that with you to share with you that, yes, I do believe George Washington was a real character. But a lot of the same reasoning that people would use to say that George Washington was not a historical figure is the same reasoning that people try to use to say that Jesus was not a historical figure. We have the testimony of documents that have been written that proves that he was a real character, that is George Washington. We have contemporaries that lived in the time that he lived such as Adams and Jefferson and Franklin, and, and they all testify and write about George Washington, and our own history as a nation affirmed to us that he was the very first POTUS, or President of the United States. You can go visit his home, etc. But today, I wanna share with you of why, not just I believe that George Washington was a real character, but why I believe Jesus was a real, literal person that lived But even more than that, I want to share with you why I actually believe in the resurrection. I know what you're saying. You're saying, well, it's one thing to maybe deny George Washington, but it's a whole other thing to deny the character of somebody who lived 2,000 years ago because, I mean, none of us were alive then. And I want to remind you, none of us were alive in the 1700s either, (laughs) unless you're one old man or woman, (laughs) or maybe you were reincarnated, as some suppose. But why would somebody believe in the resurrection? Doesn't that sound a little silly? I mean, let's think about this. Do you know one single person in your lifetime that died and came back after three days? No, I can't point to you. I can't even share with you one person I've known who been pronounced dead by a medical professional and then 30 minutes later, alive again. So why, why would 2,000 years of history revolve around one central character? And why would, why would anybody believe such an idea that somebody died and came back to life and ascended up to heaven? Well, I want to share with you seven reasons today. And the first one is, I believe in the resurrection because history affirms it. I believe in the resurrection because history affirms it. Now, how does history affirm that Jesus rose from the grave? How does history even affirm that Jesus was a real historical character? Well, the first person I want to point you to is a guy named Josephus. Josephus lived, interestingly enough, shortly after the time that Jesus lived. He was born in 37 A.D. and around 93 to 94 A.D. This is in the same century, you got to understand, the first century A.D., the same century Jesus lived, he wrote about Jesus in one of his documents called the Antiquities of the Jews. And what that document was, was a a full history from the beginning of creation until the day that Josephus was alive from a Jewish perspective. The second testifier of history is a guy by by the name of Tacitus. Tacitus. And this guy, he was not Jewish, he was Roman. And he lived in the first century AD. He was born circa 56 AD and died 120 AD. And he was a first century Roman historian who wrote many different works, but one of the works he wrote about was called the Annals, And in that, he references, guess who? Jesus. And then the third testifier in history is the dating system that we use today revolve around one character. Not Caesar of Rome, not Nero, not Nebuchadnezzar, not Michael Jordan, not Joe Biden or Donald Trump or Obama, but it revolves around Jesus Christ, B.C. and A.D. Now, I want to share with you a quote by Josephus. In fact, I want to show uh, two quotes by him. This first one here, if you can see it, I don't know if you can see it, but in the brackets here, in the italicized words are words that some allegedly say were written in by a Christian commentator at some point in history. So I'm going to disregard the brackets and the italicized words and just read to you what's not in brackets and italicized. It says, and this was, remember, in 93, 94 AD, in the 90s AD, about the same time that John was exiled to Patmos and received that vision on the island there. It says, at this time, there appeared Jesus, a wise man, For he was a doer of startling deeds, a teacher of people who received the truth with pleasure. And he gained a following both among many Jews and among many of Greek origin. And when Pilate, because of an accusation made by the leading men among us, condemned him to the cross, so it speaks about his death here, those who had loved him previously did not cease to do so. And then the final sentence at the bottom. And up until this very day, the tribe of Christians named after him has not died out. So this is in the 90s AD when Josephus is writing this. And what this reveals to us is that we can trust the authenticity of Scripture because Scripture not only records the death of Christ, it also records the resurrection. Another quote by Josephus is found in a similar area of the book. It says, but this younger Ananus, who, as we told you already, took the high priesthood... Was a bold man in his temper and very insolent, and he goes on to say, He assembled the Sanhedrin of Judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, the so called Messiah Christ, whose name was James and some others. When he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them over to be stoned. Isn't that interesting? All the way back to the very first century, before the first 100 years after Jesus was born, we have historians who were not Christian, who had no reason and alternative motive to write about him and affirm to us that he was alive and well in the time that scripture records. Here it says that he lived. Now, if you don't believe this, I can show you the actual documentation after the service. I actually have Josephus work in my office. Now, this other guy is a Roman historian named Tacitus, Tacitus, and he writes about Jesus. In fact, he mentions his execution. Now, Josephus was writing the history of Jews from the beginning of creation all the way in which he lived, and this guy was writing the history of the Romans. And within the history of the Jews and the history of the Romans, guess what you find? You find that he writes about a guy named Jesus, and he speaks about his execution, In the same chapter, he references how the Romans thought that Christianity was evil, uh, very superstitious, and they deserve to die a martyr's death. That's what he wrote about. And one writer says there's a great importance about this, not just for skeptics, but also for Christians. He says, from Tacitus' perspective, he was merely recording the events of history in the Roman Empire. Some of the details he recorded are of great interest to us today. For skeptics, that is, people who doubt or deny the authenticity of Scripture, for skeptics, Tacitus' reference to Jesus provides evidence without a Christian bias of Jesus being an historical figure. For believers, this reference affirms to us that the Bible's witness had it right all along. So we've looked at Josephus, we looked at Tacitus, but now let's think about the dating system. B.C., it means before Christ. Now, I know you're sitting here saying, well, I went to university and they say B.C.E., Brian. Well, sure, it means before the common error. But what common error is it referring to? It's referring to the life of Jesus Christ. And then A.D., it's Latin for in the year of the Lord. So here we literally have, when we are saying A.D., every time we say 2022 A.D. or 1953 A.D. or 156 A.D., we're literally saying that is 156 years after the death and year of our Lord. So why do I believe in the resurrection? I believe in the resurrection because history affirms it. But secondly today, I believe in the resurrection because textual criticism affirms it. Now, I know that the word textual criticism might sound a little intimidating to you, but all it simply means is people or scholars, they are called textual critics, and they go back in time of history, and they find ancient documents like the Bible or other documents, and they begin to compare them. And textual criticism, I believe, strongly affirms to us that the Bible is exactly what it says it is. Now, remember, in Paul's writing to Timothy, he writes and he says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That word inspiration, it literally means God breathed. That just as in, in, the, in the garden years ago when God breathed life into Adam, the Bible says that when God gave the words to humanity to write down, he was breathing life into this text. And it is an inspired text. It has life. It is not a dead text. It is alive just as much as you're alive and I'm alive today. But then scripture also speaks about in First Peter how God's word will endure forever. In other words, it will remain, it will abide, it will stay. It's not going to be fizzled out. And now that being said, I want to share with you the top three ancient documents in textual criticism. The number third most manuscripts we have is from Aristotle's work. He was a philosopher back about three to 400 years before Jesus lived. And in some of his writings, he, we have about 1,000 of them Written between 384, it's when it was written, between 384 and 322 B.C. And the earliest known manuscript that we have is 850 A.D. Let that sink in. That's like some 1,300 years after he wrote it. And that's 1,300, 1,400, 1,500 years approximately. That's the amount of years that went by, and that's the surviving most likely copy of when it's dated to. And it's about a 1,000 of them. The second one here is Homer's Iliad. You might have been to Bards & Noble. You might have seen that book. You might have read that book. And now I've seen the number varies anywhere between 1,500 to 2,000 manuscripts. But Homer's Iliad has somewhere between 1,500 to 2,000 manuscripts. And it was written in 800 BC with the earliest known manuscript dated at 400 BC. So 400 years after he wrote it is the earliest known copy of it that we have. All right, so that's the second most known document, and textual criticism. But you know what the number one document is? I mean, I'll let you even take a guess. It's the New Testament. Now, we're just only speaking of the New Testament alone here. We're not speaking about the 39 books of the Old Testament. The Old Testament alone has 25,000 manuscripts. Did you hear me? I didn't say 1,000. I didn't say 2,000. I said 25,000 and that would be about 6,000 of them that are Greek. Remember, the New Testament was originally written in Greek. Dated back, some of them are all the way back to the very first century. That is the same century in which Jesus lived in. Then you have some that are what we call uh, many different other languages. Uh, about 8,000 of them, such as Armenian, Coptic, Gothic, Ethiopian, Syriac, Georgia, and Slavic. And those are dated as early as the 2nd century A.D. and so on. And then... We have an additional about 10,000 manuscripts that are from the Latin, dated from the 3rd century A.D. and so on. So the Bible says that God's Word is inspired. The Bible says that God's Word is going to endure forever. And if that is true, if the claim of Scripture is true, then we should be able to go throughout history and be able to affirm that in some way, shape, or form in history and then even in something like this called textual criticism. And what this means for us today is that the Bible is set apart from any other document that has ever been written. When you combine even the Old Testament text, some even suggest that we have 100,000 manuscripts. When you combine New Testament, Old Testament alike, we have so much manuscript evidence for the Bible. And the interesting thing is, is is the Bible was written by 40 different men throughout uh, three different continents over 1,400 years. And it's interesting that the Bible does not contradict in any place in what it teaches. And so today, my friends, it will be rather silly and foolish just based on history and historical documentation to deny the authenticity that Jesus rose from the grave. But now I want to share with you, not just why I believe in the resurrection from history and from textual criticism, but thirdly today today. I believe in the resurrection because prophecy affirms it. In Luke chapter 24, we read about the Lord Jesus Christ is there with his disciples after he's risen from the grave. And the Bible says he takes the book of Moses, that is the first five books of the Bible, and the rest of the prophets, and he begins to slowly go through some of the major portions of scripture and reveals to them why he's the Messiah and how he fulfilled the Old Testament prophets, okay? Now, that being said, I want all of us to go on a trip. We're gonna go skydiving. Have any of you ever been skydiving before? How many of you would like to go skydiving? Okay, well, how many of you don't want to go skydiving? All right, well, I respect that, I respect that. But I do, I want to go skydiving. Let's just assume for the sake of today's message ha- that I'm taking us all on a trip and we're going to France and we're going to skydive in France, okay? But when we get on the plane, the, uh, the pilot says, hey, I just want you to know that, that there's a gold quarter out there somewhere in France and it's worth... $50 million. And uh, I don't know about you, but I'm going to try to find that gold quarter. <laughs> I know Brother Andrew's going to try to find it because <laughs> Brother Joel's been talking about his gold uh, stash in his backyard in Sunday school. Hmm. But anyways, imagine we get up there and we jump out and we, we all jump. And do you, do you realize the chances of us? Do you realize how big France is? France is almost the size of Texas. Okay, so we get up in the plane, we jump out of the plane. And the probability of any of us finding that is like next to impossible. And I say that to say this, that the same probability of us jumping out of a plane, landing in the country of France and finding one little gold quarter is the same probability of eight prophecies coming into fulfillment in one person's lifetime. And so how does prophecy prove the resurrection? Well, as I shared before, the odds of finding that gold quarter are the same as eight prophecy being fulfilled in one person in a whole lifetime, all right? But then secondly, listen to this. Jesus, in his life, I've seen these numbers vary from anywhere between 300 to almost 600, and scholars are debate about exactly how many prophecies are about Jesus and how many of them are fulfilled, but we know of at least 300 of them from the Old Testament, that were fulfilled in 33 years of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And to take things up to an even another level is at least 27 of them were fulfilled in Christ in one single day. Now, if that doesn't give you any type of evidence for the word of God being true, I don't know what would. You see, I believe that philosophy and history point back to scripture and reveals to us that we can believe scripture as it is. And then listen to this. I wrote down, this is not an exhaustive list, but these are just some of the passages in the Old Testament. And I put in brackets where it's fulfilled in the New Testament of just the passages in the Old Testament predicting that the Messiah would be resurrected. So back in Genesis chapter three, we read about how the Messiah would crush the serpent's and he would bruise the Messiah's heel. How would he do that? How would the Messiah crush the serpent's head? Well, the cross and the resurrection. Then we could go into the Psalms, where the psalmist writes in Psalm 16, speaking about how the Holy One of God, Jesus, the Messiah, would not see corruption. His body would not see decay. And in Acts chapter 2, in Peter's sermon, and in Acts chapter 13, in Paul's sermon, in the book of Acts, we read about how they revealed to us that that was the Messiah being recorded by the psalmist, and being fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus speaks about his death. He speaks about his resurrection. In fact, one of the greatest illustrations that he gave was about the prophet Jonah. He says, just as Jonah was in the whale, so shall the Son of Man go into the heart of the earth. And so today, as we think about the prophet Jonah, we realize that as he's going to preach to Nineveh, his life was a simple picture of the coming Messiah, how the Messiah would die on the the cross for the sins of humanity, for your sins and for my sins, and he'd be gloriously resurrected so that we could have life and have it more abundantly. So why would I believe in the resurrection, you ask? Well, I would believe in the resurrection because history affirms it, textual criticism affirms it, prophecy affirms it, but then fourthly today, I believe in the resurrection because the eyewitness accounts affirm it. The great resurrection chapter in the New Testament is 1 Corinthians 15. And in the first 11 verses of that introduction, Paul's laying out to us. He reveals the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But then he lists some of the eyewitnesses. And we went through all these before. So just for the sake of review, I want to zoom through these. But remember... Jesus appeared to the two disciples on their way to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. As they were just walking down the road, Jesus magically and supernaturally appears to them. And then he eventually sits down with them in a home. And as they were eating a meal, he revealed to them he was the resurrected Messiah. In Luke chapter 24, the Bible speaks about how Jesus had a private appearance after his death and resurrection with Peter. And then, the apostles are gathered together in that upper room and, and in Luke 24 and John 20 and somehow the doors were locked. They are afraid that they were gonna come and be taken and, and thrown in jail and killed and Jesus supernaturally steps in the room. And this time, Thomas was absent. But then another time, Jesus supernaturally comes in and steps into a room that's locked with the doors being locked and Thomas is present and there he revealed to him how he was the Messiah and he, Thomas placed his hands on his hands and on his side. And he said, my Lord and my God to Jesus, the resurrected Messiah. Then Jesus appeared to the seven disciples by the Sea of Galilee. You remember in John 21, the disciples just went back to fishing and there they're trying to catch fish. And Jesus is standing on the shore and he says, have you tried the other side of the boat? And they cast a net and they caught so many fish. And Peter puts his shirt on and jumps into the water and swims to the shore. Then Jesus appeared to over 500 men at once. Did you know in a court of law, I shared with this a couple weeks ago, that all you need to condemn or justify somebody is one simple witness? Well, we've got the witness of textual criticism. Do you think it is just coincidence that all these manuscripts have survived decade after decade, century after century, for 2,000 years and then beyond? Do you think it's just a coincidence that that a Jewish historian who was not a Christian and didn't have any motive to affirm Jesus' life speaks about him in the first hundreds A.D.? Do you think it's any coincidence that a Roman historian and also a senator speaks about Jesus? My friend, the the list of witnesses are stacking up, but then Scripture records that over 500 people saw Jesus after he rose from the grave. So how much more do you need? Are you going to be like me? that I have to go back into the 1700s and see George Washington for myself to prove that he actually lived? Do you have to go back 2,000 years ago and be so absurd to say that I have to go back and travel through time and, and I have to see Jesus live for 33 years to believe it? Do you have to be that absurd, my friend? Well, I hope that you'll have some sorts of logical reasoning to see all the evidence is stacked up against you and you have to submit to the Lordship of Christ Then Jesus appeared to James privately. Jesus appeared to all the apostles on the mountain of Galilee. And in that moment, we believe that he gave the great commission to go into all the world and and make disciples and preach the gospel. And then Jesus appears to the disciples right before he ascended up to glory in Acts chapter 1. And then Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. And he writes about that in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8 through 11. So why would I believe in the resurrection? History affirms it. Textual criticism affirms it. Prophecy affirms it. The eyewitness accounts affirm it. But then check this out. I believe in the resurrection because the women's testimony affirms it. Now, I didn't share this a moment ago, but before the disciples and those two on the way to Emmaus and all the other apostles saw Jesus and before the 500 ever saw him, there were some women who got to that cemetery early in the morning hours on Sunday, right before the sun rose, they got there and they witnessed for the very first time that Jesus rose again. You say, what's so important about that? Well, what's so important about that is, is let me take you back 2000 years ago. And in 2000 years ago, I don't know how else to say this, but to just say it as I shared a few weeks ago, that a woman's testimony was not deemed credible in that culture. In the Jewish law system, if you were a woman and you stand to testify, they would just not count your testimony. They wouldn't count. And so it's interesting that, that if Jesus wanted to abide by the so-called standards of his day, wouldn't he have went to the apostles first, the men first, and the disciples? No. He goes to the women first. And the women thought that or excuse me, the men thought the women were crazy until they saw him. And in Matthew chapter 28, we read about that, that we just read a few moments ago. So today, I know that we are living in a unique age where people are fighting for certain equality rights for women. And rightly, it should be done in many areas. But I want you to understand this, that the Bible does more for women than any other ancient document ever written in history. Because Jesus, the resurrected Messiah, went to a woman first to reveal to us, even in a day when men didn't think women's testimony was credible, Jesus declared that a woman's testimony is just as credible as a man's testimony. And the Great Commission is not just a commission for men, but it's a commission for all men and all women. Remember what Paul said? He said, there is no male, no female in Christ. In other words, positionally in Christ, he doesn't see me as a man, he doesn't see you as a woman, he sees us as a person who's been redeemed by Jesus. And so in Matthew chapter 28, we read about how Mary Magdalene saw Jesus at the tomb, and then she runs to tell Peter and John, and then the other women who are there see Jesus on their way. After the angels told them to leave, they witness Jesus. So the women's testimony is one of the reasons why I believe the resurrection of the Messiah. History textual criticism, prophecy, the eyewitness accounts, the women's testimony, but, but the sixth reason is this. I believe in the resurrection because the life-changing power of the gospel affirms it. In Acts chapter nine, we read about a man named Saul. Saul, just to remind us all, was a Pharisee of Pharisees. As touching the law, the Bible says he was blameless. And he was a scholar of scholars. He had the right education. He had all the credentials. And he, in his own mind, thought he was doing God's will by going around and murdering Christians. Because they were teaching Jesus was the Messiah. But then when the man named Saul was on the way to Damascus to go kill more Christians, the Bible says that Jesus appeared to him. And much glory and so much glory that, that he couldn't see for a few days. And a man who once killed Christians, who butchered them, beheaded them, and imprisoned them, became the greatest preacher of the gospel outside of Jesus and John the Baptist. Today, I want you to know this. That the gospel has so much power that it can change the lowest of lows in society. I was preaching in a jail one time and the guy asked me if murdering somebody would disqualify him from going to heaven. And I said, well, can you think of anybody in scripture who murdered somebody? We think of David, King David. Even though he didn't actually murder that man, he sent him to the front line of battle, so he's blamed for the murder and the death. We can think of Moses. Moses definitely did. And we can think of Saul. In fact, in Acts chapter 7, we read about that man, Stephen, who's preaching. And there they took up stones and stoned him to death. And there he was sit- laying at the feet of a man named Saul, consenting on his death. So I want you to know this. It doesn't matter if, you, if you've been strung out on drugs. If you've lived a life that is just so immoral compared to Scripture. Or, or if you're so far away from God that you think there's no more hope or if you're sitting in prison for the rest of your life, listen, there is hope found in the gospel because the gospel is able to change any man or woman's life. And that's what we see in the life of Paul. But we also see it in James, the brother of Jesus. Remember in John chapter seven, the brothers of Christ doubted that Jesus was the Messiah as he said he was. And I think maybe the reason why Jesus went and visited James privately was of course because brother, relative, but also so he could remind him maybe, I'm speculating here, and hey, remember I said I was the Messiah? Well, hey, I'm resurrected now. You can finally believe. These two men, he took a skeptic and turned him into a disciple. He took a murderer and a persecutor and turned him into a great proclaimer of the church. And today, my friend, no matter where you're seated at the table of the gospel, there's room for you in the family of God. And the gospel, Paul writes in Romans, it says that it has the power, it is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believes. To everybody in trust the name of Christ, you can be redeemed. All these different reasons are stacked up. But I want to share with you the, the last reason today of why I believe the resurrection. Back in 2016, I had the opportunity to go to Israel. And I walked into the garden tomb. And I went in, and I didn't see any bones. I didn't see any casket. I saw an empty tomb. And I only say that because it just affirms to us that we don't know exactly if that was the exact tomb that he was buried in. But it reveals to us right here in our text today that we read publicly that in Matthew 28, the angel told the women, come and see the place where the Lord lay. He's not here. He is risen. Today, my friends, there's great power in the gospel Today we celebrate the fact that on Good Friday, Jesus went to the cross. And there he died for your sins and my sins and sins of the whole world. And there he took the penalty of, of all of my sinful thoughts and sinful words and sinful deeds and everything that I ever did and everything that I ever will do. He put it all on the cross. He did the same for you. And then he was placed in that borrowed tomb. He was so dirt poor, he couldn't even afford his own plot at the cemetery. And there Joseph's tombs recorded that there he was placed and give God the glory three days later, he was risen. So, why would I believe in the resurrection? Well, history, prophecy, textual criticism, the witnesses, the women's testimony, the changing power of the gospel, and the empty tomb. But my question for us all today is do you believe in the resurrection? And my question, if I could, let's dig a little into your soul a little bit today is this do you informatively believe? or transformatively believe in the resurrection of Christ? In other words, is the resurrection just information in a book that's placed on a shelf or an encyclopedia that we can go back and read that history tells us about? Or do you believe in the transforming power of the gospel and that you've put your faith and trust in him and that your life, now that you're a child of God, is not like it was when you were not a Christian? Today, you either have to come to the point where you're just going to say, well, hey, this is just information on a bookshelf or it's transformation because it's changed me from the inside out. It's either or. Romans says that if we confess, that means to admit and to acknowledge with our own lips and mouth that Jesus is Lord. And if we entrust or believe by faith that Jesus rose from the grave, it says we shall be saved. So my question for you is this. I don't know, maybe you've never been asked this before, but have you ever experienced the new birth in Christ? Are you born again? Have you been washed by the blood of Christ? And today I close with this statement. And I say this with much grace and compassion, but with as much courage and, and, and boldness as I know how. If you do not believe in the resurrection, then you are not a Christian. Do you believe in the resurrection? What's up, guys? Brian here again. Just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRalph.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless. I'm gonna keep my I'm gonna live by faith I'm gonna walk by. I'm gonna keep my I'm gonna live by faith Keep the faith Keep the faith Keep the faith Keep the faith